This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. First Corinthians chapter 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we've all been baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were the hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if we're all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Honor on presentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Paul's analogy of a body being like Christ's church is a good one because it perfectly illustrates for us the fact that every member, that every part is important. And that without exception, all have a part to play, all have a role to fulfill. In verse 27, he says that collectively, we are the body of Christ. Yet he says that individually, we're members of that body. So our individuality doesn't weaken the body, it strengthens the body. Again, he goes on to say in verse 17, if the whole body was one big eye, how would it be here? And if the whole body was one big ear, how would it be smell? So the body is just not one kind of member, it is many different members. And each one, although different in function and purpose, yet is absolutely vital for the health of the whole body. There are no spare parts in your body. For years, evolutionists have told us that our appendix was vegetal. In other words, it was something that has been left over from the evolutionary journey that we've all made, according to them. They've also told us that our DNA, that a lot of it was junk DNA, was no longer necessary. But now we've discovered just in recent years that that's a load of baloney. They've had to admit that our appendix is there for a purpose, that there is no junk DNA. So every single part of our body, God placed there for a purpose. 
And so there's no spare parts in the body of Christ. Every part of the body is there for a purpose. Text, uh, the title of the message tonight is there's a purpose for your life. There's a purpose for your life. Now, Peter used another analogy to describe the church of the body of Christ. First Peter 2, 4, and 5, you don't need to turn to it. He says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on the next verse to say that Jesus, of course, is the chief cornerstone. So whether it's living stones or whether it's members of the body, all of us has a role to play. Nobody's redundant. Everybody has got a part. So each and every single one of us adds to the body of Christ and we add to his building. Now leaving aside the obvious roles that you see carried out in here week in, week out in this fellowship, there is a role for you. There's a part for you to play beyond these four walls. And you don't need any special talent or any special ability. So therefore, all of us without exception can play this part. So what is our part that all of us can play? Well, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 5 and 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Every single one of us is salt and light to this world. Outside of these four walls, where we live, where we work, where we go to school or university or business, all of us are salt and light in those places. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not they or he or she, you. And this role doesn't need a platform. It doesn't need a pulpit. It doesn't need an instrument. You don't need a golden voice. All you need to be is a dedicated follower of Jesus. All you need to is love Christ. And then you can be salt and light in places that the preacher can never go. You can be salt and light in your family, your home, your job, your school, your office, your factory floor, all of those places that I cannot go. But you're already there. God doesn't need me to go to the factory floor or your office. He's already got somebody there to do the job. So what did Jesus mean when he said that you're salt and that you're light? You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of man. No one would argue that this world is in a terrible, terrible state. In spite of all of the advancements and the progress that has been made in so many fields, that we seem to be regressing morally and spiritually. Morally, the UK is bankrupt. Absolutely bankrupt. TV producers, movie directors are ever pushing the limits of decency. 
And just when you think that you're unshockable, suddenly something happens and you say, I don't believe it. How could they allow that on television? But they do. Because as a nation, we've become amoral. No morality. Anything goes. And sadly, some Christians, and I have to say this, go to movies today that even the unsaved 20 years ago would have been embarrassed to go to. You don't have to go to the latest movie. You don't have to go to the latest movie. No matter what is being talked about, you don't have to go. If it's good and wholesome, fine, all right. But if it's dodgy, if you know there's going to be stuff in it you shouldn't be watching or hearing, do not go. You don't need to go. We need to set a standard. Whenever a former minister says that he prayed before he sent the nation to war, then the television pundits, the news editors, exploded with indignation that the G word was actually used by the Prime Minister. <laughs> I remember just a few years ago, Alistair Campbell, who was the then Prime Minister's spin doctor, he famously said when an American reporter asked him, well, what is Tony Blair's uh, religious beliefs? He says, we don't do God. <laughs> well, it's about time Britain did God. It's about time somebody did God in Great Britain. Because if we don't do God, what else is left? Spiritually and morally, the United Kingdom is just a shadow of what it used to be. Somebody, and I don't know who it was, but somebody rightly said that Christianity may be the flag that Britain sails under, but it's no longer the rudder that steers the ship. We're nominally Christian, but spiritually we're far from God. The statistics in church attendance in Great Britain makes grim reading. It's alarming, actually. And even some newscasters that has now retired in recent times has said that within the BBC, it's endemic and it's systemic, <coughs> the attacks on Christianity. And it's getting worse. And so Christians are daily being subjected to charges of, like, for, like of homophobia. And with an ever-increasing belligerent and tolerant gay agenda that sees every criticism as a hate crime, then everyone has got freedom to speak except if you're a Christian and you disagree. And once you do that, then you find they're not very tolerant after all. <laughs> And so we Christians, we get offended too. We get offended when the BBC spends our tax money on programs that are highly blasphemous and offensive. And we get offended, and rightly so. We get offended whenever Richard Dawkins, the poster boy of atheism in Britain, when he gets all the airtime he wants, and he's lauded and fawned over, and treat it with the utmost respect, and anybody that comes against him is demonized. So is the trend irreversible? Is there nothing that can be done? 
Are we to simply surrender to the dark forces that permeate our society? Is there no answer to this downward spiral of irreverence and godlessness? Thankfully, there is an answer. And the answer is you, and the answer is me. We are the answer. That's why Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If we're not salt and light, there's going to be no salt and light. So the world's not going to be salt and light for itself. And so we are the salt, we are the life, light of the world. Now, in Bible times, salt was a great commodity. In fact, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. That's where the term worth your salt comes from. And in Palestine, salt was plentiful. There were salt marshes. Dead Sea was full of salt. There was pillars and cliffs of salt. So when Jesus spoke of salt, people readily understood what he was talking about. It wasn't just a common commodity. It was an important commodity. And salt had certain properties, various uses. And let me just mention briefly just a few of them because this is what we're supposed to be in this world around us. First of all, purification. Salt cleanses and purifies. It's an agent for good. Salt water heals and hardens our skin. Not easy to get it on your skin, especially if you've got a cut. But us growing up, and you couldn't get taken to the doctor very quickly, and you got a cut, your mother would have poured it in or got you to bathe your feet in it for a while. In fact, some footballers used to bathe their feet in salty water to harden them up. And so there's a purification, and the salt within us ought to bring healing and purifying influences within our society. We have a cure for brokenness. We have a cure for sin. We have a cure for all kinds of stuff that the enemy sows in the life of men and women. And we have the answer to that. We are the salt, we are the light. And many people feel wounded and they feel disenfranchised, they feel cut off, they feel hurt, they feel lost. And so the church should be an oasis for that. It should be a, a place of recovery for people going through rough times, difficult times in their life. Somebody said, the world at its worst needs the church at its best. Someone said, the ministry of the church is a ministry of people. When a church lives, it is because people within it are vital and active. When a church dies, it withers and dies, not because the bricks and mortar and carpets and pews get old and begin to crack and rip and crumble, a church withers and dies because the people wither and die. So let's not wither and die. Let's be the salt and the light that God means us to be. If the salt has lost its flavor, may we never lose our flavor. Hmm. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ 
and note this, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. In your office, in your classroom, on your factory floor, beside your neighbor, in your home, wherever you are, there is a fragrance of Christ in your life that diffuses. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other we are the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? When a person that you come in contact with and through your life and through your lips, through your actions, through your words and deeds, they turn to Christ, then you have become an aroma of Christ to that person. They smelt Christ off you, if I could put it bluntly. There was an aroma about you. There was a fragrance about you that they caught. <coughs> to those who reject Christ, there's a fragrance of death about you. <laughs> they can't wait to get away from you quick enough. You smell to them. But the fragrance of Christ to somebody who's turning to Christ, then it's a lovely fragrance. And they want to be around you. And they want that sense of Christ that's in you and that we can transfer to them through the knowledge of Christ second thing is preservation salt preserves it stops the rot as bad as this world is it would be a whole lot worse without Christianity Imagine if the whole world was atheist. Imagine if the whole world was communist. Imagine if the whole world was Islam. Imagine if the whole world was Buddhist. Imagine if the whole world was Hindu and no Christians. What kind of a world would that be? But you see, Christianity has brought a compassion and a mercy and a love that most religions hasn't got. But Christianity has. And it has brought this into the world to stop the rot. Show me a nation where Christianity is not strong and I'll show you a nation where it's rotten at its very core. And the oppression of the people is awful. People are crying out for a better life, for something greater than what they've got. And they're not going to get it in a country that is without Christ. So I'd much rather live in a country that influenced by Christianity than anything else in this world. Where do you suppose the great philanthropic organizations sprang from? I'm talking about orphanages and hospitals and hospices and almsgiving and charities. And almost all of them, almost without exception, sprang from Christianity, from the influence of Christianity. Salvation Army, city missions with their outreaches to the poor and needy of the inner cities, the Boys Brigade, the Girls Brigade, Teen Challenge, Dr. Bernardo's, 
with their emphasis on youth and children, the Red Cross with its humanitarian relief, the Royal Institute of the Blind, and hundreds more like those. All of them came out of Christianity. Now, there was no Christianity, can you imagine? See, there was a time there was no hospitals. None. Didn't exist. But Christianity brought that into being. People who loved Christ wanted to help people. They wanted to have the compassion and mercy and do something for them. And that arose out of Christianity. And then seasoning, salt seasons. It flavors, it gives taste to. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Now we feel in that, don't we? At least I have. Maybe you're super spiritual and you've never failed in that. Do you ever say something to somebody and as soon as you said it, you say, hmm, I wish I hadn't said that. Why in the world did I say that? Do you ever get angry and after you've been angry, you thought, oh, some testimony that. Do you ever do that? Am I the only one's ever done that? <coughs> I don't think so. Oh, good, Ken. I'm glad you're, you're an honest man, Ken. You're an honest man. And so... The emphasis, though, is that we have, in our speech, it's got to be seasoned with grace. And it's wonderful whenever you're able to say things that are encouraging and helpful and strengthening and also challenging. The Bible says about Jesus, they marveled at the gracious words that come out of his mouth. Now, he could be strong. In fact, he should preach sometimes on the things that Jesus said because, you know, we got a picture of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild and, and, and never get angry and never said tough things, but he really, really did to the religious people. He was quite strong with them. But in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so that's her speech being seasoned and seasoned with salt. As well as being gracious, sometimes we have to speak the truth in love. And that's where the salt comes in. And as I said earlier, when you put salt <coughs> on a wound, it stings. But it's good for it. And sometimes we have to do that. Some Christians are so light and loose with their tongues that they stumble others. And you wouldn't know whether they're believers or whether they weren't. Now, those of you who are on social media, let me just throw this out to you. Because sometimes I say to Sally, sometimes I'm shocked. Because I know this is a professing Christian. And the stuff they put on social media sometimes makes me cringe. 
sometimes the swear words that she used, not that they have written it, but they've taken it from somebody else and shared it or pasted it and copied it. And I thought, why would you do that? Why as a believer would you want to do it? Why would you want to use those words? If, if you don't want to say them with your mouth, why do you want to write them for everybody to read? I was telling Sally about somebody that's, that's on Facebook, and, and one time this person, you know, well, all the time actually, they maybe have this great scripture verse and this flurry picture, you know, and it's a lovely as old scripture verse, and it's lovely. And then maybe within an hour, within an hour, they have something else that you think, what? <laughs> what? Is that the same person? No, no. James chapter 3 lets us know that our words are very, very important, very influential. James likens the tongue onto a little fire, a little flame that can set a whole forest alight. And we know, we know just the wrong choice of words can start a whole big row, can't it? <laughs> Husbands and wives, can't it? David and Judith, please take note. This couple's about to get married. <laughs> and sometimes just the wrong word, and then suddenly it just ignites something, and then there's a whole ding-dong. And in the midst of it, you forget how it started. And at the end of it, you say, how in the world did we get into that? But that's what the tongue does. It starts something. And if we're not careful, then it gets bigger and bigger. It becomes a big, big flame, a big, big fire. He said it's like the little rudder on a great big ship. It's only a small little thing, but it changes the course of that great ship. And your tongue can change the course of your day. It can change the course of your life. It can change the course of your marriage if you're not careful with your tongue. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that we are justified by the words of our mouth. And Jesus said that the words of your mouth is not important, then we better believe it's important. And so it needs to be seasoned with salt. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The Bible is very explicit. The world is in darkness, and we are the light of it. There is no other light other than the light of Christ in us. Do you really believe that? Honestly, do you really believe that? Because it's the truth. Take us out of this world. There is no light, spiritually speaking. There is none. Philippians 2.15, Paul says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. <laughs> now, over the years, people have come to me in church and they've said to me, Pooh, see that old job I've got. See those people in that office. See those people I work with. Oh, desperate. They're terrible. They're awful. 
And I've listened to it for a while, and then I stopped and said, hold on a minute. But that's why you're there, to be salt and light. If you weren't in an office where everybody's lovely and everybody's nice, and they're all believers, and you can talk about church all day, you don't have to be salt and light. We're in somewhere. It's full of unbelievers. Then you can be salt and light. You are the light of the world. First Thessalonians 5, 5. You are the sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. The moment you get saved, you went from darkness to light. You went from death to life. You went from the old to the new. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. So there was a, a transformation immediately, instantly, you became a new creature in Christ. And for most of us, in that instant, we knew it. We knew something had happened, and our lives were transformed. What is spiritual light? What is spiritual darkness? Spiritual light is knowledge of God. Spiritual darkness is ignorance of God. Uh, surveys were taken recently among children about Easter and Christmas. What is Easter about? What is Christmas about? And you'd be amazed at some of the answers. Lots of the answers. Lots of them had no idea there was anything to do with Jesus at all. In fact, some of them thought that Bethlehem was the birthplace of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Seriously. Shocking. Most, anyway, thought that Easter was to do with bunnies and chocolate eggs. That was it. Didn't know anything about Jesus. Hadn't been to Sunday school. Never been taught anything at home. Complete ignorance. Spiritual darkness. Spiritual light is spiritual sight. Spiritual darkness is spiritual blindness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not. Spiritual light is the wisdom of God. Spiritual darkness is the wisdom of this world. Spiritual light is life. Spiritual darkness is death. Spiritual light is a contrite heart. Spiritual darkness is a hard heart. Spiritual light is righteousness and holiness. Spiritual darkness is worldliness and carnality. Spiritual light is submission. Spiritual darkness is rebellion. Spiritual light is loving the brethren. Spiritual darkness is hating your brother. John writes in 1 John 2, he said that if you hate your brother, you are still in darkness. That's a shocker of a verse. I talked to a Christian one time, many years ago, he used to come here, and there was somebody that he hated with an absolute passion and made no bones about it. Told me again and again, I hate him. So I took him to that verse. I says, you're still in darkness. That's what John says. You're still in darkness. I don't care, he says. I hate him. <laughs> and as far as I know, he still hates him. But he's walking in darkness. He's not walking in light because he hates his brother. 
spiritual life, spiritual light are closely related. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light, shall have the light of life. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once darkness. Not that you just walked in darkness, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you have light, you have life. If you have life, you have light. Because Jesus is both light and life. The moment you get saved, you got a new life and you get new light. For the first time, the scriptures became alive and real to you. Open thou my eyes, the psalmist said, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Whenever I got saved, my eldest sister gave me a Bible marker. Not that, but a Bible marker. And that's what was on it. I had it for years and I lost it. I don't know where it is. And I used to pray that every day for years. Before I opened the Bible, I read that and prayed that, Lord, open my eyes that I can see wondrous things out of your law. And do you know what? He did. He gave me light, and I had life. Men are not satisfied or fulfilled by the natural. Men are searching, they're longing, they're looking for something more, something deeper. But they're looking for it in all the wrong places. They're looking for it in a bottle, they're looking for it through drugs, they're looking for it through illicit affair, through promiscuous living, they're looking for it through gambling, they're looking for it through excitement and thrills and danger, everything and everywhere, except the very place that they're going to find it. We see this all the time in the world of celebrities, don't we? They have their fill of everything, everything their hearts have ever desired, they've got it and more all the money they've ever wanted, all the fame they've ever wanted, all the adulation they've ever craved, they have that all. And having had it all, they're still not fulfilled. They're still looking for something that's missing. And that's why many of them goes into the esoteric, the, the false cults and the fatty cults and all the rest of it. Because they're looking for something that they haven't got that they can't find in the natural, that's not there in the physical. They've had all of that, and it still has left them empty. The Beatles, at the height of their fame, they were the biggest pop group in the world. But they still were unfulfilled. And they went to India to seek out a Maharaji. Not all of them lasted with that, by the way, but George Harrison did to the day he died because they were looking for something else. Tom Cruise, John Travolta, so many of those stars joined Scientology. <coughs> Madonna took up Kabbalah. 
Some embrace Buddhism or Hinduism or New Age. Oprah Winfrey, she mixes mysticism with a pinch of Christianity and a dollop of Eastern thought and philosophy and a side dish of, dish of psychology. It's a whole mishmash of everything. <laughs> and she's still searching. She's still looking because she hasn't found what we have found. She hasn't found the light and the life of Christ. This is the faith realm. This is the spiritual realm that we are in today. She hasn't found it. In Acts 17, Apostle Paul is in Athens. And he's walking down the main street. And he sees all these statues of gods. All the Greek gods. Many, many of them. And he's looking at them all. And he comes to the end. And there's one, an empty plinth. And written on it is to the unknown God. All those other gods, they had a plenty, but there was still something missing. And they were still searching. So they put the unknown God. And Paul says, that's the one I'm going to declare to you. I know that one. The one that you don't know, I know. Let me introduce you to him. <laughs> I'd repeat it tonight, but for those of you here this morning, we gave that testimony of Steve McQueen, the actor, and how at the last he came to faith in Christ. He had all the fame, all the money, everything. Still wasn't enough. And it still isn't enough for anyone. God has given us all these sensory perceptions, these abilities. All our senses, our whole five we talked about the other Sunday. All of this helps us function in the natural we live. We can't live without them. We need them. But we're not governed by them. We're not controlled by them. There's another realm for us. It's the faith realm. It's the spirit realm. And God has given us his Holy Spirit. And he's filled us with his Holy Spirit. <coughs> and we have the Spirit of Christ. And so that's what completes us. That's what fulfills us. This life in the Spirit, this Romans 8, 2 law, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus that's freed us from the law of sin and death. So what are the results of this light that shines in us? Light exposes. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When I was a wee boy growing up, in a terrace house in Ballyclare. I remember this is just after the Second World War, just a few years after the Second World War. And your houses were very basic, and uh, almost everybody's home in the terrace house, at least we you know you had stairs up to the bedrooms, but underneath the stairs, you boxed that in, you put a door on it, because that's where you kept your coal. Now, you'd never dream of keeping your coal inside your eyes today. Sure you wouldn't. But that's where you kept your coal. It kept it dry. And in that day, that was the normal. That was fine. The only thing was, if you needed to go to the loo in the middle of the night, which was outside, by the way, but not inside, and you had to put the light on, and as soon as you flicked that light, and you knew it was going to happen every single time, you flicked that light on, and the room was full of cockroaches. Hundreds of them. You thought you had a black moving carpet at times. That would creep you out, wouldn't it? 
creep me out too. But as soon as you put the light on, they scattered in every direction. And you stood there till you got a pathway through. And then you kept the light on till you came back. <laughs> Lift up a stone, any stone, big stone. And all those creepy crawlies, they don't like the light. They're looking for a hole to crawl into. And spiritual light exposes darkness. Has it ever happened to you, maybe in the workplace? I know there's people who would curse and swear just to get at you and goad you and all that. I, I worked in a factory for years, so I know what that's like. Have you ever been in a situation where you've walked into an office or a room or maybe two or three guys were speaking or girls, and as soon as you walked over, the conversation stopped or changed just like that? Because they knew that what they were saying that they shouldn't be saying it in front of you. And they felt convicted and they felt guilty. And so they stopped cursing or telling that off-color joke or making that comment because the light exposes that. Before I got saved, I was working shift work. And it just so happened there was a Baptist guy whose locker was just right above my locker. And so, at the end of the shift, if we had some time, we used to play cars. Devil's cars, <laughs> as they called them. <laughs> That's what you're parent. You playing them devil's cars. <laughs> I was brought up in a Christian home. I knew he was a believer. And there was times I was about to put them in. The devil's cars were about to go in the locker, and I seen him coming. And I put, them in, I put them in my coat. I felt guilty. Honestly, I felt guilty. I felt convicted that this Christian would see me playing devil's cards. <laughs> it's a silly thing, isn't it? But yet, it's not. Because his light convicted me. He didn't say anything. And he wouldn't have said anything, probably. But just his presence, knowing what he was, and he was a godly man, his light convicted me. And your light can convict people. Just your presence can convict people. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Light transforms. Light brings life. Even in the natural world, we need light, sunlight, to make plants grow. Don't we? Now we have sunlight, very, very hard, if not impossible, for plants to grow. We need sunlight. Our bodies need it. Vitamin D. We don't get much of it in Ireland. Sure we don't. There's a, there's a thing called SAD, isn't it? I, don't know, I, I know it means you need light, but I don't know. What does SAD stand for? Grace. Set out loud. Seasonal affective, affective disorder. There you go. Not enough sun. But it's vitamin D. And if you don't get it, it affects your physical bones, affects your muscles. So your two weeks in Spain will do you good. <laughs> it might be the only sun you'll get all year. <laughs> light brings life, and it's the same spiritually. Light brings life. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Just as your body needs light, 
Your spirit mom needs light, spiritual light to make you grow. Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 19, 21, so we have the prophetic word confirmed that you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. Now, I know this is to do with Israel. I understand that in its context. But there's an application for us. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. We are the only light in a dark world. There is no other light. There's no other salt. It's us. Paul said in Ephesians 1 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. <laughs> that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I know things today as a believer that I didn't know 10 years ago or 20 years ago because you're always learning. And this is what amazes me about this book, the Bible. You can read it for 50 years and one day you're reading it and something pops out. You've read it a thousand times but you never ever saw that. <laughs> you never saw it. But suddenly God enlightens you and you see what he's saying and what it means to you and maybe to others. Matthew 5, as we close, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The day I left my job to come into church work, the day I left, that day, after years, I think it was eight years I worked in that place, a man came to me and he said, I'm a believer too, you know. I thought, I know I didn't know. You never ever said to me, you never ever said to anybody else. As far as I know, you never shared that with any other person. And you tell me the day I'm leaving, I'm a believer too, you know. And I thought, no, you didn't. Are you? Really? I didn't know that. He never, he never let his light shine. Not once did he ever testify to any of those men. Not one time. Never let his light shine. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is your purpose in life? To be salt and to be light. As we go out into this world this week, this month, this year, this lifetime, then let's be salt and let's be light. You've got it. You are it. The Lord's depending on us. He doesn't have anybody else. Angels is not going to come and do this job. They haven't got it. They're not redeemed like us. Only us. Glory to God. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, as we face another day, what an opportunity for us to shine your light in dark places. What a chance for us to be that salt in the midst of corruption. Lord, by our words, by our deeds, by our lifestyle, we can be a testimony of light and salt. So, Lord, I pray that this week, that every single one of us in this room will be that light and will be that salt. That the opportunity will arise for us to be the light and be the salt. And, Lord, will be effective in the doing of it. So, Lord, bless your church. Thank you for your church. Thank you, Lord, that your church is the light and salt in this dark earth. And, Lord, until you call us home or until you take us home, Lord, that's what we've got to be for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the light of the world. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.